Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. I'm your host, Kat Fendel, and this is the 23rd episode introducing WDM members and their amazing work all over the world. Welcome to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia. My guest today has had a very impressive career in One Health and conservation management that brought her to the US and eventually back to her home country where she is based now. Dr. Ishtushin Shilekdamba, called Enki, completed her degree in veterinary medicine at the Mongolian Agricultural University. Subsequently, she moved to the US to do a master degree in preventive veterinary medicine and epidemiology at the University of California in Davis. She applied her training as a postdoctoral researcher in foodborne illnesses and outbreak investigation. And in 2007, Enki returned to Mongolia to work as a wildlife and veterinary epidemiologist on a number of projects for the Wildlife Conservation Society. In 2016, she was promoted to the position of Mongolia Country Program Director. This year, Enki has been a consultant as the Transboundary Animal Disease Specialist with the World Bank and FAO. You can tell we have a lot to talk about. Welcome to the show, Enki. Thank you, Kat. I'm very honored to be on your show and meeting wildlife colleagues over your podcast. <laughs> Enki, let's start with a couple of WDA questions. When did you join the organization? I joined WDA in 2004 while I was a student at UC Davis. And obviously, I was connected with WCS back then. And Dr. Billy Karish, he advised, why don't you join WDA? So it was a very good opportunity for, for me. And I remember receiving lots of great WDA uh, publications from my student membership <laughs> and really enjoyed um, being part of WDA. In collaboration with Richard Koch, you have closely uh, been collaborating with. You have a bit of a vision for your region in Asia, a potentially new uh, WDA chapter. Do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Yes, so Dr. Richard Koch is the key expert on Pestipetids ruminans virus and its outbreak in wildlife. And we had this die-off in Saiga, which basically has killed more than 80% of the population of the Mongolian Saiga. He was in Mongolia and we're traveling through the country, talking different issues, problems, and talking that, you know, in, within Asia, Mongolia is so different. Mostly in Asia, it's a wildlife disease spilling over into the human or livestock population. But in Mongolia, it was the opposite way. It was livestock disease. It's actually a transboundary animal disease that's a spread in livestock first, sheep and goats. It's like a sheep and goat plague. And then it uh, slowly spilled over into Saiga population and hence there was such a huge impact in Saiga population and we were talking that our Central or East Asia needs to have a WDA um, chapter that uh, we are able to share all this kind of unique information experiences you know when there is such kind of outbreak you are like shocked and you 
quickly trying to look for recommendations, advice to include into the government uh, management, you know, decision-making policies. And sometimes you just feel like you have no resource or information. And that's where WDA chapters in our close proximity might be very helpful and useful. So it's a dream. There is no uh, no membership or group list yet, but hopefully within the next four or five years, we may be able to achieve that <laughs> dream. Yeah, that sounds great. Fingers crossed. I'm very sure that you will set something up. That would be awesome. We have dived right into some of the wildlife disease issues in Mongolia, but let's go one step back. What is your favorite part about Mongolia's nature? <laughs> Mongolia is very kind of underdeveloped country. Still, we have nomadic culture, nomadic pastoralists. And because of that huge culture, people's belief, we have preserved the country quite well, especially the biodiversity. It's well protected. So I would say the uniqueness and the beauty of Mongolia is in our nomadic culture, where we see the herders coexisting with the wild nature and with the fauna. <laughs> that is pretty awesome. Let's chat a bit about your career, which is very impressive. After you graduated from vet school in Mongolia, you made the big step and moved to the US to become an epidemiologist. What made you do this big step? Mm -hmm. So after my graduation, I was working in Mongolia with American veterinarians who were in Mongolia trying to help because the veterinary service has been just privatized after the Soviet system and veterinarians were basically struggling. And with this NGO that American veterinarians have established, along with the CVM, Christian Veterinary Mission Support, I was working in rural areas, helping Mongolian veterinarians get knowledge on how to establish a private business. And as part of that work, I worked with many Western veterinarians who were coming, giving advice. And, and along with that advice, I received that epidemiology is very important new topic. I met one of our friends who was at, actually at the time doing her postdoctoral research at C. Davis, and she literally advised that MPV training is really very well established training and will be a great opportunity. So I pursued that advice <laughs> and I'm very happy that I've made that decision. I have applied for the Mongolian government scholarship to study abroad and was able to fund myself with the scholarship. What was this transition like from the Soviet system to the open or free market when veterinarians had to establish their own business? Like, how did this transition go? It was a very difficult period because, you know, herders, they received free service from the government. And then 
overnight, <laughs> basically over three, four years, there was a shift of privatization of livestock. Even livestock was um, not private property. It was the government property. It was privatized to herders. And once herders started owning livestock, they needed veterinary services. But the services were also, in the Soviet time, free. Uh, now, they had to pay for their own services. And so herders themselves didn't have money. Veterinarians, they knew how to work for the government, but didn't really know the skills on how to work, talk, negotiate, explain herders, the importance of veterinary service. So it was very big struggling period. And I would say this NGO VetNet has done amazing job in Mongolia in educating veterinarians, especially private veterinarians on how to establish their own services to make it uh, successful. In 2007, you decided to move back to Mongolia and work for the Wildlife Conservation Society. So you left academia to um, work in applied management and one health and conservation. You mentioned um, your involvement with the outbreak among the saiga antelopes before. And let's chat about this a bit more. You said it was the Peste Petit Gouminon that was responsible for this outbreak. Was it clear from the beginning that it was this virus causing it? Or was that a longer process to find out? And how did the population recover from that? The um, virus was circulating in the livestock uh, earlier that um, within that year, a bit earlier in uh, shipping goats. And it was a critical habitat of Mongolian saiga. Um, you know, saiga is only um, range in very limited area in Mongolia. The disease was diagnosed in shipping goats. So once it started spilling over into saiga, they started dying right away, like within a day or two of developing symptoms. And the symptoms were quite clear, clinical symptoms of pestipitis ruminans. So it was easy to diagnose. And our state central veterinary laboratory had quite good support from international organizations in developing their skills in PPR diagnostics. So they were ready and easily able to diagnose the virus in wildlife as well. What's the survival rate of this virus when an animal is affected? The mortality rate is up to 80%. And that was the case in Saiga, but not in sheep and goats. In the first year's outbreak, sheep and goat mortality was 15%, which was quite low. But we were surprised and shocked why saiga and why mortality is so high. And we were discussing with Dr. Richard Koch, and he was also telling that this is the first case of uh, PPR outbreak in wildlife. It exists in Africa, but you never had such a massive outbreak. You test and you detect seropositive animals, but you 
don't really clearly see the clinical symptoms or sick animals, let alone animals dying in such high numbers in wildlife. So I think our species was very naive, very susceptible, and we were afraid that it would spill over into other wildlife populations. It did during that time, not only saiga, but goiter gazelle, Siberian ibex, were heavily hit. It was also detected in the Argali sheep, the bighorn sheep. Later on, it was detected in in Mongolian gazelle. So it is slowly spreading into other species as well. But the mortality is not as high as the first year we experienced. And the saiga, as you asked, they have recovered because the saiga, well, if I start talking about saiga, it's going to be a long story. Oh, please, but, um, please. Yeah. I, I find them fascinating. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, saiga, we understand it's a prehistoric species descended from the Ice Age. You know, it coexisted with the woolly mammoth. And it has a very unique physical especially nose formation. (laughs) It has like multiple chambers and very puffy, big nose. That air that comes in gets warmed up until they breathe in. And they run very low, like their nose is very low to the ground when they run. So I think it also filters the dust. And so the saiga have also very unique twinning rate is very high and I think 50 to 60 percent of saiga tends to twin so the recovery from almost 3,000 left in 2017 up to the end of 2022 there's 15,000 saiga so can you believe it's like multiplied so much and so fast I'm definitely fascinated by the saiga and the fact that, like you said, that they're kind of an ancient mammal. And isn't it fascinating how some species just survive, but then they still seem a bit more sensitive than the rest of the more modern species that that are around? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So much to, you know to research and to understand. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a bit. Uh, big politics and diplomacy as well. Your position with the um, Wildlife Conservation Society also brought you basically to the world stage of international high-level conventions and meetings. And I guess that's a very different world compared to talking to farmers in Mongolia, for example. How much had the epidemiologist had to give way to the diplomat in you? (laughs) Yeah, it's a totally different world. Mongolia proposed to CITES to upgrade the saiga protection because of these mortalities and die-offs. And in other parts of the world, the saiga populations are doing very well. They're growing. And there is a need for sustainable trade. But at this critical point, we were afraid that international trade would you know, bring huge pressure to Mongolian saiga. And so we have played a (laughs) big role with the U.S. government support, Mongolian government support at the CITES COP in demonstrating 
why SAIGA needs to be protected. And we were very happy with the outcomes where the SAIGA from Appendix 2 to Appendix 1, while was not upgraded, but our aim was to stop the international trade from the wild. And with the zero quota additionally imposed under Appendix 2, we were able to secure that, you know, trade pressure on Saiga. So we were very happy, but obviously, as you say, it's a big diplomacy world. It's like some negotiations were very shocking to me, <laughs> like me being questioned <laughs> why, you know, Mongolia is doing this, that, and it was very high pressure, but I'm very happy that we have overcome that. And I was very happy for the decision that on which some Saiga range states were happy, Mongolia was happy, other, you know, the EU, US government, everyone who supported us were happy. So yeah, it was a win-win, I think, for everyone. <laughs> oh, that's great news. But from what I figure, from what you said, it's like you're still glad you went the path of becoming a veterinarian and not a di full-time diplomat? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and since this year, you have done some consultancy work for the World Bank and for the FAO. How how does this position differ from your previous job? Like what are the main topics you're dealing with as a consultant now? So I think my career has really <clears throat> nicely evolved on its own, you know, talking about wildlife health and then me being a veterinarian, talking about livestock health. And during the this pestipides ruminants outbreak, we have discovered Wildlife is critical to be monitored globally in order to eradicate the disease in countries. So like slowly, you know, you're still learning in your career some new things, new lessons. And when globally everybody, especially the quadripartites like WHO, UNEP, um, FAO were talking about One Health. My career has really nicely evolved into this One Health expertise because of my both livestock and wildlife health experience. And also, that's why I was consulting with the World Bank on helping develop One Health profile for Mongolia. There was a bigger consultancy team. I was one responsible for environmental wildlife health. So One Health is still being a very hot topic in Mongolia. You know, we want multi-sectoral collaboration, multi-government joint actions, policies, frameworks to address diseases jointly and to manage diseases jointly, which is really great, great momentum. And so that was my consultancy with World Bank, with FAO. I'm consulting as transboundary animal disease specialist, helping Mongolian government develop transboundary animal disease strategies. 
update some of the strategies, develop some of the new disease strategies. So it's, you know, it even though I have worked in the wildlife health sector for the past 16 years, but still there is a has been a lot of connection because of wildlife issues, diseases, and livestock, all over 70 million livestock in Mongolia creates a huge pressure to the wildlife populations. And I am very happy to contribute some wildlife input into my strategies. <laughs> and everybody is basically laughing at me and making jokes. <laughs> Don't make the strategy a wildlife focus. One last question for you, and this is certainly a naive one, but for people who are not in your field and don't have this like comprehensive overview of how things are connected, what does the World Bank, maybe just a fairly short answer, what does the World Bank really have to do with One Health? Oh, you know, World Bank globally is one of the strongest donors contributing to health agenda of the government, supporting the health agenda of the governments. And as part of that, although World Bank is not part of the quadripartite One Health Joint Plan of Action, they are one of the organizations who are also pursuing to to bring coordination among health sectors to build strong One Health within the world, within different regions, different countries. So that's why World Bank is looking into One Health profile for Mongolia. They have established, developed One Health profiles in other countries in Asia already. And when they develop project proposals, or when the government develops project proposals, you know, they will consider the World Bank One Health profile, pursue those recommendations. So basically it's to help the governments to start and build a very efficient One Health system in country, not only in country, but also regionally. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. See, that's one of the reasons I like being a host on this podcast. I can ask all these slightly naive questions and get away with it and learn in the process. I love that. <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for being my guest on the show, Enki. It was really interesting to chat with you and learn from your experience. Thank you so much. And I'm very honored to be on your pod WDA podcast. And hopefully, we will continue building a strong One Health in Mongolia, and not only in Mongolia, but globally. And wildlife disease experts' contribution to that is very critical. So I encourage everyone to look up One Health, how they can be part of One Health. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now. <laughs>